0: You are now listening to MacroDose. MacroDose. Hello and welcome back to another episode of MacroDose Extra, where we go in-depth with some of the leading voices from the world of economics. Our guest today is Kojo Karam. Kojo is a senior lecturer at Birkbeck School of Law, University of London. He is the author of Uncommon Wealth, Britain and the Aftermath of Empire, A Tour de Force and the Legacies of the British Empire, and How They Shape Modern Britain, which was nominated for the Orwell Prize for Political Writing in 2022. Kojo is also the co-author of Empire's Endgame, Racism and the British State, which was published in 2021 and starred the recent short film for Open Democracy, Boomerang, How the Legacies of Empire are Breaking Britain's Economy, which you can find on YouTube. I caught up with Kojo recently and began by asking him about a piece he wrote last year for the New York Times entitled Britain's New Prime Minister is Still in Thrall to the Empire. The piece was about the then newly appointed PM Liz Truss and her economic policies. In it, Kojo reminded his readers about the true origins of neoliberal economics. He wrote about Enoch Powell, whose racist paranoias about the death of the British Empire came hand in hand with the championing of neoliberal thought. The article provoked a massive backlash from the UK right-wing press. Why was that, and what does it tell us about the erasure of the roots of neoliberal thinking?
1: i think it was the result of the timing of the piece the location of the piece i think i came in between this kind of brewing cold war between the british journalistic establishment and the new york times and you know with the new prime minister um liz truss at the time people wanted to be you know very optimistic about the potential for, you know, turning over the page after the kind of scandal and um, corruption of the kind of Johnson administration. And I think, you know, criticizing the intellectual lineage that Truss was very much a product of, you know, the Institute of Economic Affairs described her as a politician that they had incubated, that they had cultivated since the Britannia-run chain days. And, you know, I just made the connection that um, whilst everyone was talking about Truss's similarities to margaret thatcher um being a reanimated kind of thatcherite project i wanted to draw that longer um chronology to the politician who really was the politician who um like it or not was the one who mainstreamed the institute of economic affairs as a policy think tank and that was enoch powell he was the person working with arthur Seldon and ralph harris and anthony fisher and you know the first politician to write papers for them the first politician to champion them in Parliament. Um, you know, at a time when they were quite a marginal um, institution, you know, Powell really aligned with um, the Institute of Economic Affairs as well as with the Mont Pelerin Society and Friedrich Hayek. And so I just drew that lineage um, to try and connect the the, the, the the trajectory from which Powell emerged. Um, and I dropped it, you know, clearly at the wrong time for, for some of the more sensitive journalists in the British Conservative press. But, um, you know, I think that after Listrust then tagged the British economy in about a month and a half, I did feel quietly vindicated after, um, of course, receiving all that. Criticism,
0: a completely, completely unwarranted criticism. I mean, look, I, I, as I said, I, I I sort of came into this thinking that okay, this was an accepted part of the heritage of free market thinking in Britain, but it, it, it was quite extraordinary way it seemed to really hit a button for some people. a real denial that uh, neoliberalism or neoliberal ideas would have any connection to, to an obvious racist like like Enoch Powell, and I think it's perfectly reasonable to call him that. Yeah,
1: I think the thing that made people uncomfortable is maybe they pointed towards the Interconnection between the kind of nativist xenophobic politics that we have most associate with Powell, um, which have been very much kind of dismissed in, in at least in kind of acceptable polite circles, although we know that it informs everything from you know criminal justice policy to migration policy, but it's very much disavowed and to, to kind of explicitly say it in the way that Powell did in the Rivers of Blood speech, but just a few months after the Rivers of Blood speech, you know, Powell is at the Montpetren Society given a speech about releasing of capital controls and the imposition of a floating exchange rate. So this is a side of Powell's work that has been very much embraced and mainstreamed. And I think that the reason why he's such a useful historical figure to interrogate is I think that he does point to the interconnection between the more exclusionary and often explicitly racial um, underpinnings of free market capitalism um, which if you just looked at the the economic literature you might not see so clearly and so I think that's part of the reason why people find making the connection between neoliberalism and the kind of nativism of Powell so uncomfortable.
0: I mean that's something I want to pick up on because there's a version of yeah, it, really, it's, it's a, bit a question of how fundamental those relationships are because there's a version of a criticism of neoliberalism, which I you know, personally totally disagree with. I think it's completely barking up the wrong tree. But if you go and find someone like Wolfgang Strick. Uh, in Germany, where he says, okay, neoliberalism is this, this sort of equalising force in lots and lots of different ways. It, it, it's, it's smashing up all differences. It's, it's about making everywhere uh, perfectly the same. This is anti-national. This is anti-racist in some senses. It's, it's against traditional ideas of the family. It's doing all these things, right? So it's, it's almost taking exactly the opposite view, that it, there, it's, it's denying any connection between racism and neoliberalism. I think Aaron Kudnani, as well as yourself, has also recently sort of highlighted the problems in this. But I think it's interesting, your own work is starting to make those connections quite apparent. And I wonder if you want want to say a bit more about the the sort of the deeper relationships, as well as a thinker like Powell, a thinker and a politician like Powell, the deeper sort of structural relationships between the two is what comes out.
1: Yeah, I think that it's really about kind of decoupling the kind of rhetoric that has Propelled neoliberalism over the last 30 or 40 years from the actual practice of it and the way that it functions in reality. I think that so much of the rhetoric around it is liberatory. It's around, you know what I mean, deregulation, around breaking all boundaries, around being a disruption within traditional kind of static and stagnant economic structures. But I think what, you know, a work of a lot of um, some of the more, for myself anyway, innovative and inspiring political economists thinking about people like Quince i and thinking about also kind of decolonial scholars like Akiel and Bembe um, really emphasizes the way in which so much of um, what we think of as neoliberalism relied on kind of strong state intervention on creating the conditions for that kind of free marketism and um, you know neoliberalism that we that we associate with the uh, Reagan I Thatcherite um uh, Pinochet model. Of of economic uh, kind of disruption, and so I think that when we look at the way in which there is a reliance on a strong criminal justice system, there is a reliance on strong border controls. You know, a lot of my other work, um, you know, also touches upon the history of the war on drugs and drug policy, and I think that there is, you know, an unsurprising parallel between the um, militarization of uh, of kind of violent mass incarceration policy, really anchored on the war on drugs in the West, and the um, in emergence of kind of neoliberal deregulatory um, economic policies. I think that there is that there is that disciplining requirement of um, creating the kind of, you know, precarious labor force that neoliberalism feeds upon that requires the techniques of racial capitalism and kind of state intervention that if you look to the rhetoric around, um, you know, the writings of Hayek or Friedman or many of the other uh, kind of doyons of neoliberal thought, you might not see so clearly.
0: I'm wondering there about how it maintains that kind of separation of rhetoric and reality. It's quite a striking that you tend to think that at some point, you know, what you're going to claim ideologically has to match up with what you're actually doing. And neoliberalism quite effectively, I think, has a story about itself that it tells people that this is about freedom and this is about liberating people and this is, uh, you know, all the sort of some of that that half of the Thatcher rhetoric that you sometimes see stretched out by the Institute of Economic Affairs or the Adam Smith Institute. That and presumably these people actually believe it, but the reality of the thing has always been, as you say, quite different. This is this is about the establishment and re-establishment of hierarchies in a very particular way. But it's it's the collision between the two and the maintenance of that that seems quite quite distinctive, I think, for neoliberalism at least.
1: Yeah, no, I would say so. I think that that, um, you know, that that, that, that shifting between um, a, a, a rhetoric that invites a an investment, particularly by, you know, we think about the Thatcherite Project, so much of it relied upon an investment of traditional working-class communities that didn't have access to property, to capital, being invited through systems of credit, through the promise of a property owning democracy for a new type of... Um, Transition of the social hierarchy um, in terms of wealth. Um, that rhetoric is something that relies upon an invisibilization of the kind of violence and uh, and extraction and discipline that occurs often within the same jurisdiction, but of course, um, primarily internationally. Um, that underpins the supposedly liberatory potential of neoliberalism. And I think that that's what makes it so interesting to think about um, the connection between the emergence of neoliberalism in a country like the United Kingdom and the histories of empire, the histories of decolonization, the way in which Britain had to remake itself in the latter half of the 20th century um, in order to position itself in the global economy you know, without the 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 umbrella of essentially, you know, the largest empire that has been recorded on human history.
0: I mean, that's that's a, an interesting point to pick up on, because, I mean, this might be my slight misreading of of where people are coming from, but Quinn Slobodian, for instance, would... would I mean, his book, his his last book, last but one book is called The Globalist. It's about the development of, of neoliberal thinking as specifically something that was always oriented towards the international in this sense that this is where you, where you start from thinking about uh, neoliberalism. Whereas I, I think you have a story that's much more rooted in, immediately rooting the history of Britain and the British Empire and the development of neoliberalism from that and and it's a question really I suppose is to what extent do these things clash like is neoliberalism uh, an inherently sort of globalizing force or is it always something that develops from this kind of particular national histories as you you lay out so well in the case of Britain
1: um well I've not I wouldn't yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't would accept that i'd say there's a complete clash or contradiction between those two points i think that what i was trying to argue um in the story of britain is the idea that britain has always been an international story you know that you know i use this phrase in the book that we often you know very offhandedly say things like you know britain had an empire You you know probably said that already you know over the course of, of, of this podcast but i'd say in the book that it's actually much more accurate to say that the empire had britain as in that the um the project of imperial expansion is something that very much produced the constitutional form that we understand as the the united kingdom of great britain and northern ireland today you know the England's relationship, constitutional relationship with places like Barbados and Jamaica precede the act of the union with Scotland, precede the unification of England and Scotland, which is, of course, the very anchor of the union. Um, that, And of course, and the reason, you know, we read, you know, people like Robert Burns and a lot of the great Scottish writers of the period, you know, they're very clear that they see the motivation for the Scottish nobles as joining the union is to partake in the expanding imperial riches of of, of England's growing empire at the time. It already has Jamaica, Barbados, the Virginia slave colonies, um, you know, slave forts in, in West Africa. Scotland was already in Embarked upon its colonial project in New Caledonia, that that there is an international orientation to Britain before it comes into fruition. And so much of the economic, legal, constitutional, and political structures of Britain are produced in that international context. And I think what I tried to do in the book on Commonwealth was try and explain how So many of the systems and structures and dynamics that drive the inequality that we see in the United Kingdom today are connected and are indebted to that international history, to that history of empire, and the way in which so much of that structure was preserved through the transition to formal decolonization that we get in the mid-20th century. And so I think that there is always an international aspect to it, um, particularly in a place like Britain, which, as I argue, was always constituted of the global um, before it started to try and refine itself and remodel itself into the national, if it even has done that up until
0: 2023. What's interesting about that, I think, is it's also a challenge to a particular kind of uh, history writing or theorising about empire and about colonialism, which stresses its backwardness. Like what you're offering is a story about this is this is how Britain modernised. This is how you end up with something like capitalist modernity. If you if you dig out Joseph Schumpeter or or a better example maybe uh, Arno Mayer and the persistence of the old regime that colonialism is basically the result of the backwardness of Europe. It's these aristocratic elites that are still sort of clinging onto power and force colonialism when that doesn't work. You end up with fascism instead. Is I I do a a rather condensed version of Arno Mayer's thesis there, and and it's it's interesting to completely flip that on its head and say, actually, this is what modernity looks like in Britain. And we're still stuck with this, that the, the way of getting out of this thing starts to look like where you have to challenge some of the precepts of modernity in Britain, not assume there's a kind of backwardness that you have to take on.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that it, it you know, it places Britain in that position of, you know, both being at the very cutting edge of, you know, modern systems of capitalist extraction, but also, you know, kind of, you know here you know drawing on people like Tom Nan and Perry Anderson talking about the way in which Britain's early emergence into modernity kind of constricted and restrained its development into the kind of, you know, standard European bourgeois nation state, um, you know, that we might see in places that didn't have a similar type of successful commercial empire that Britain had. You know, we might see that in, in the kind of constitutional form of Britain and, you know, the, the lack of a codified constitution and the way in which, you know, it, it continues to function as this um, kind of strange jurisdictional model where we have overseas territories, we have the city of London as a quasi-autonomous economic force. We have all of these kind of pre-modern um, quasi-feudalist dynamics to Britain's uh, constitutional formation because of the way in which the wealth and opportunity of empire constrained its transition into full kind of bourgeois standardized European modernity. And I also think that in addition to trying to talk about the role of empire in the kind of cut-and-edge um, Structures of modern, you know, 21st century digital financial capitalist extraction. I was really trying on Commonwealth to kind of push back against the normal way that empire was being talked about over the last, you know, three, four, five years where there had been this return of attention to empire, but very much in the kind of cultural and symbolic sphere. You know, we've been talking about statues and we've been talking about curriculums and we've been talking about, um, you know, street names and, you know, decolonization was about what was going on in art galleries and what was going on in, you know, the last night of the proms. But whilst that 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 element of it, I think, is very much important, you know, we know that, you know that 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 cultural ideology played such a key role in justifying the 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 systems of empire. Um, I wanted to return back to the kind of core driver for the British Empire for for any imperial endeavor, uh, which is of course material, which is of course the extraction and transfer of wealth across the globe and understanding how that history of empire you know influences cutting edge modern 21st century digital capitalist extraction by connecting it to things around tax, things around debt, things around the corporate form and reminding people that like, this is what empire was about, you know? As important as the kind of cultural ideology was, you know, I say in the book that, you know, nobody, you know, gets on a ship in the 17th century and sails halfway across the world, you know, to try and share some literature with someone, to be like, oh, have you read some, you know, William Shakespeare? No, it's about the taking of movement and extraction of wealth. And that is um, something that we need to return to in understanding how empire connects with the very real economic crisis that we face, um, even in Britain in 2023.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, it's it's the it's, it's the return to sort of the material roots of colonialism and imperialism. I think also gives you the opportunity to sort of generalise the story. I mean, it's it's a book you write about Britain, and and it's a detailed sort of history and a, and a, a quite brilliant analysis of what's what's happened for the last sort of three hundred odd years. But once you start to talk about what are the drivers of colonialism, this is a story that repeats. Like, very obviously, for all the European empires, they all have similar mechanisms to this. This isn't just something unique to Britain in that sense.
1: No, absolutely. You know, and I think that, you know, even with the earlier question you mentioned about, like, the different histories of neoliberalism, you know, that this is... This is one story of neoliberalism that I'm talking about in terms of how it connects with the history of and the aftermath of the British Empire. But you know, there's been other stories, and you know, people have talked about it with the aftermath of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Of course, there's been many histories talking about the the you know the central role that the emergence of the United States of America as a global hegemon plays in the emergence of neoliberalism. But I wanted to both um, talk about. This history of the British Empire, which I think has been overlooked, especially when we think about the scale of what the British Empire was, you know, in terms of territory, in terms of population, in terms of wealth, it was the largest empire in human history. And so that's already one kind of distinctive element of it in comparison to the other European empires, you know, with the French, the Belgian, Spanish empires. And then the other distinctive element about it that I think is important as well for understanding its relationship with contemporary capitalism is I think that the British Empire was the most refined in using the techniques of modern commercial capitalism in order to expand the empire around the world. You know, we often say, again, the idea that Britain had an empire, thinking that so much of imperial expansion was facilitated, by the kind of you know the core british crown or the british state ignoring the what really kind of set the british imperial project apart from its french and belgian rivals you know the dutch did this kind of as a precursor but then britain really took and ran with it was the employment of private commercial companies, you know, that conveyor belt of the Hudson Bay Company in North America to the Royal Africa Company, you know, which had the slave monopoly in the Gulf of Guinea to, um, you know, latterly the Anglo-Iranian oil company or the Royal Niger Company, and probably most famously, of course, the East India Company, like this use of ostensibly private capital to do the kind of work of being de facto sovereigns for all these territories across the world, I think really did a lot to, you know, explode the corporate form as the main mechanism for organizing economic activity across the world. And so I try to talk about that in the context of the history of the British Empire to try and connect it to the debates that we have today around the You know, preeminence of multinational corporations and the you know the difficulty of states you know not just states in the global south but now increasingly states all across the world to be able to contain the um, economic activities of you know your Googles and your Amazons and your Facebooks and your WalMarts and these giant multinational corporations. I think that it's I think that this kind of material history around empire does a lot to kind of take the debate around decolonization away from the kind of more moralistic, more judgmental discourse that we were kind of, I think, getting stuck in, in the kind of post-BLM kind of moment, you know, where there was a lot of guilt and blame and finger pointing. And I tried to talk about the material side of it to be much more, to connect it much more with, you know, very real struggles Economically, the people across different communities are facing you know in the 21st century, which I think has hopefully more potential for transformative politics than the more moralistic arguments of the of the symbolic register
0: well this this point about encasing I think is is, is really useful because it's it sort of it allows you to draw a line that goes roughly from, you know, the East India Company all the way through to a multinational corporation today, like, well, take your pick, BP, Amazon, whatever it might be. But also, in terms of British history, it's this notion that that the the cultural forms, which are often pre-modern, as you said, actually encase something that was incredibly modern. I mean, you can see this very dramatically. If you go to the City of London, on one level, the corporation, the City of London, is this sort of slightly ludicrous, basically pre-feudal institution, with everything associated with that, sitting next to some of the most advanced bits of capitalism are anywhere on the planet, right? You get the two things jammed together and separating the the two is is a very useful sort of technique for people to try and get their heads around, particularly if you live in Britain where you just get this combination absolutely all the time. Um, But the bit I wanted to pick up on it was something else you mentioned, which is, that, okay, we, we have this sort of, once you get into the material roots of what colonialism is like and where it gets you to neoliberalism, it's the question that, okay, everyone has different histories, different things they bring into modernity. That's what the different empires look like. They arrive through different routes, but everybody kind of gets neoliberalism. So the question, I suppose, is, was neoliberalism inevitable? Were we always going to find ourselves at the proverbial end of history because of this?
1: Well, I think the looking at the history of decolonization, like formal decolonization in the mid-20th century, you know, once we start to get that, you know, the collapsing of the dominoes following India's independence and then you know, we get Ghana and West Africa and, you know, over the course of, you know, just a couple of decades, we have, you know, more new nation states being created than you know, that we could have possibly imagined if we go back to the 19th century, I think that the history of that moment suggests that neoliberalism maybe wasn't always inevitable because there was so much work in, you know, put into creating the conditions of neoliberalism and gutting the, the potential sovereign power of these new nation states. You know, we still, again, I think, kind of make our current global order which is an order of nation states transhistorical, and project that back into time immemorial but it's only with formal decolonization it's only with um you know that that wave of new nations being created in the aftermath of the second world war that we actually become a world of nations no longer a world primarily of empires and with the world of nations there is a fundamental challenge to global capitalism which has emerged in the context of empire which you know on a very kind of crude and and basic register you know now has to exist under the rules and regulations and tax demands and labor laws and protectionism of a plethora of different nation states rather than under the umbrella of one single global spanning empire or or few global spanning empires and so this requires that encasing of the interests and rights of transnational capital away from the potential disruptive effects of 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 upstart you know newly sovereign nation states at a much more intense level than it would have done previously, and so I think a lot of the kind of systems of neoliberalism, whether we might think about the way in which odious debt is used where we might think about you know some of the forums of protecting the movement of capital across the globe um, you know things like investor state dispute resolution tribunals things like the you know the the institutions of the WTO um, all of the kind of international private law institutions that protect the movement of capital across the globe are uh, very much emerge in the aftermath of decolonization and I try and argue in the book by looking at a few different instances of decolonization from you know Ghana and Nkrumah to Iran and Mossadegh to Jamaica and Michael Manley, and look how their attempt to use the powers of of sovereign statecraft to interrupt the flow of global capitalism was guttered, you know, initially in quite crude forms, things like coup d'etats and people being removed from governments, but eventually more refined in the use of conditional loan agreements, structural adjustment programs, and eventually the, um, you know, establishment of institutions like investor state dispute resolution tribunals, the WTO, to limit the ability for these these countries to interrupt the flow of capitalism. I think that that is a crucial story of the emergence of neoliberalism globally, and I think that's one that doesn't suggest that it's inevitable. It in fact, suggests that a great deal of work was required in order to protect that interests and movements of, of of those you know often sometimes the very same colonial companies. When we think about places like BP, we look at their history as the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. These are the very same colonial companies that. With a little rebrand, are profiting in the era of 21st century digital finance neoliberalism? That were also profiting in the era of crude European colonialism.
0: I mean, this is this is maybe picking up on a, on a concept you you make use of, borrowing a. a borrowing from uh, Amy Césaire uh, and Hannah Arendt. And, and I think, although I, I don't know if you mentioned him, I think Leon Trotsky has a similar idea when he talks about the, the impact. They all have this idea of the impact of colonialism then goes and repeats itself in, in the colonial powers. This is the boomerang uh, that, that you, you, you write about. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the, the mechanism that, that's involved here, because it's a graphic description of what's happening, but it's, a, it's the way in which the, the feedback occurs that, that I think is interesting. I use this kind
1: of metaphor, um, narrative structure across *Uncommonwealth*, um, both explicitly in terms of my methodology, but also in terms of how I write the different chapters. Um, you know, this idea of the colonial boomerang, which, yeah, is shamelessly pilfered from Aimeer, and in fact also his wife, Suzanne Césaire, who did a lot to kind of cultivate the, the emergence of this concept. Um, the idea of the colonial boomerang, that what happens in the colonial hinterlands during the era of European colonialism, doesn't simply stay there, doesn't simply dissipate into the terra nullius of the colonial hinterlands, but eventually comes flying back, comes ricocheting, um, re-emerges in the very heart, the very metropole of empire itself. And for the Césaires, um, you know, they talked about the idea of the colonial boomerang in relationship to the emergence of European fascism in the mid 20th century and connected the violence of, you know, the Italian empire in Abyssinia or, you know, the Germans or the Herrera people and you know, what is now modern day Namibia with the systems of dehumanization and isolation and um, eventually extermination that is then wielded out on European populations in those, you know, same countries a few decades later. Um, And it's the idea, you know, people like, you know, Hannah Arendt, Michel Foucault also talks about the colonial boomerang in terms of connecting um, the violence of French colonial policing in Algeria with systems of surveillance and securitization that start to become more intensified in France in the decades subsequently. And I think what we talk about when we talk about the colonial boomerang is the idea that the hinterlands, the global south as we call it nowadays, isn't simply this space outside of the world order and isn't outside of the politics of the European nation, but it's almost like the laboratory for the European nation. It's the place where experiments can be carried out, this kind of petri dish, to see what are the best systems for disciplining populations and extracting wealth and labour from them. And once those are sharpened and those are refined on the global south, they are, of course used and weaponized and mobilized, even on the, um, native populations of, of those very same countries. And I try to talk about that in, in terms of on Commonwealth with regard to the kind of economic history of, of, like I say, wealth extraction, inequality, um, creation of precarious labor um, undermining of security for um, everyday people we see that sharpened in the former British empires in the aftermath of decolonization and now I think when we look at systems of you know precarious labor regulations we think of systems of austerity we can start to see some of those techniques again being wheeled out and and and, and embarked upon in a very intense way in the united kingdom you know in the current moment i think that this the reason why i wanted to talk about the colonial boomerang as well as i did think that it had that political potential that i spoke about a little bit earlier i think the the way in which decolonization the relationship with decolonization had started to become discussed in the aftermath of growing attentions to empire over the last few years i think was again very much with this idea that the violence of empire, you know, to kind of everyday working class people in Britain, that, you know, this is your fault, you know, that the economic struggles that you're facing now, this is the paying of the debts of of, of forefathers. This is a loss of status. This is a declining living standards that you should accept because your living standards were essentially based upon the extraction and exploitation of people all around the world. And, you know, for me, this just didn't do anything to address, you know, the kind of real pain that people were feeling around the constriction of living standards in the United Kingdom. Uh, And it wasn't able to, you know, kind of harness it in any kind of positive political direction was, I think that the concept of the, of, 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 of the boomerang allows for not an oppositional relationship between the interests of working people in the former colonies, the interests of working people in the former colonial metropole, but creates that, that framework for, you know, cross-border political alliance to explain that the processes of kind of extraction and profiteering that have been sharpened on the people in the global south are now being employed on you yourself. And so the opposition to that has to kind of vis-a-vis rely upon a certain type of political allegiance between these two different territories in order to challenge the same systems of exploitation that will end up ultimately impoverishing all of their lives. And so that's why I kind of drew upon that concept. And I think that for me, it was quite useful for explaining the relationship between the economic crisis that Britain's facing, you know, very acutely now in 2023, you know, more acutely than when I wrote the book in like 2020, 2021. And the histories of empire and exploitation
0: on people in the global south you know countries like Ghana, where my family's from i can see the the sort of political merit of doing this although it is also a, a challenge to a sort of an earlier tradition of, of thinking critically about colonialism and, and empire um the I mean, George Orwell uses this sort of frame of reference. Lenin certainly talks about it. Where empire is a direct beneficiary for at least some section of the working class population in the colonial countries, right? The, the, this is the imperialist bribe that is paid to the aristocracy of labor to get really heavily into into this sort of literature. There, right? That's where how it's supposed to work. The boomerang is a complete challenge to that. He's saying actually everyone is being reduced to the same sort of level. So it's it's a it's a different way of thinking. Thinking about the subject, then perhaps you know anti-colonial movements have thought about in the past. Yeah, no, I, I mean,
1: I you know spend a lot of time wrestling with the literature on the idea of you know the European labour aristocracy, and and of course it has you know a great deal of truth to it, particularly in that kind of you know nineteenth century, early twentieth century moment, even up until the kind of transition to the welfare state in the in the mid twentieth century. You know, so much of that architecture that improved the lives of working class people here in the United Kingdom relied upon the extraction of not just wealth, but labor power, brain power from the colonies in order to build up and, you know, populate the, the welfare state that did so much to um, provide a social safety net for working people here in the United Kingdom. And so there's no doubt that the histories of empire did benefit working class people here in Britain um, and improve their living standards, you know, in comparison to their their, their compatriots in, in in the colonies. But I think we also need to you know bring that story to its full conclusion and bring it to its to its um to its apotheosis and when we look at you know the way in which the global economy has reshaped itself in the kind of era of deindustrialization you know we're not in the same you know kind of global economic uh, systems of production and supply chain lines that Orwell and Lenin were writing towards where, you know, the global South existed for the extraction of raw materials. And then we get industrialization in the manufacturing centers here in in, in the colonial metropole. And then we produce those commodities that are then sold back to the, to the global South at extortionate rates, whilst elements of that remain, you know, we've had a complete shift to where the centers of production actually exist in the 21st century, where, you know, those factories that were in, you know, your Sheffields or your Detroit or your, you know, Manchesters are now shifts to to Mumbai and to Lagos and to Accra and to Nairobi. Um, you know, we do have this um, way in which um, people in the, what we consider the global north, you know, the, the former colonial Heartlands um, have a very different relationship to the flow and movement of capital commodities around the world, and to the flow and movement of credit and and debt across the world now. And I think that that change in how capitalism functions has to be reflected when we think about the relationship between working people here in places like Great Britain and working people, you know, in 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 places like you know West Africa, which is you know that's the kind of the two centers, main centers of of oscillation that I talk about in the book. you know, being that that's the two places that I'm most familiar with. But I think that that can be extracted broader for the relationship between people in, you know, what we call the Global South and what we call the Global North in the 21st century. And I think that there is a potential, I think there has to be a potential for some sort of political allegiance between working people across those different categories if we're going to have any hope of being able to constrain, kind of run away capitalism, you know, particularly as it starts to move towards questions of kind of existential questions such as, you know, the climate crisis and and and, and the ability to contain its operations
0: in relationship to that. Um, there's also that that element that I suppose the, the idea of a boomerang picks up on, which is, um, I mean, you talk about production has moved around the world and shifted. And, and it's quite dramatic. I mean, if you take sort of hourly wages for a factory worker in, in, in Shenzhen or somewhere now, they're not that far off, you know, European levels. This is something that's happened in the last 20 years or so. So it's a dramatic change in, in the balance of, of incomes and, and production. But there's also that part where an element of the boomerang or the idea of it is that you're bringing people close together in terms of how they relate to production itself, that you're potentially looking at a much more extractive, unpleasant, degraded process that's being imposed on everyone so something along the lines of if you look at david harvey you know the, the sort of uh, accumulation by dispossession the idea that actually capitalism isn't being particularly productive necessarily but there's a lot of people who are sort of being absolutely ground into the dirt and great numbers of raw resources being torn up and that this is a process that many many people including people in the former colonial powers uh, are starting to experience The version of
1: absolutely yeah i think that's a really crucial point and it also gives a kind of lens and a framework to understand this kind of you know the decimation of living standards that are being experienced by kind of mid you know not just you know low low pay earners but middle income earners in in places like the united kingdom you know i think there needs to be a uh, a language to understand the kind of stratification and the um you know the the kind of constriction of living standards that people are really feeling in the united kingdom and how that you know is is reshaping the way um society the norms of society are anticipated by people um you know when we look at um you know what what is you know britain on its current trajectory going to look like in 10 20 years time you know with huge levels of wealth inequality, with a kind of impossibility of social mobility, um, you know, with the monopolization of property by a very small, exclusive um, kind of asset holding class? Um, You know, are we going to start looking at the kind of stratification that is often familiar in places like, you know, Brazil or, you know, Nigeria? You know, I think asking these kind of questions requires a twofold decoupling of traditional thought around how wealth and power is distributed across the globe, I think the first it requires us to look at the expansion and explosion of wealth in in, in a kind of elite circles in the global South over the last 20, 30 years, you know, go to places like Banana Island or Victoria Island and Lagos, you go to, you know, your Dubai's and you go to your, you know, you go to these, 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 these centers of unfathomable capitalist opulence. Um, to show that there is this kind of huge amount of wealth that is being accumulated within these, you know, supposedly kind of poor countries. And then you also look at the kind of conditions of deprivation that is exploding here in places like the United Kingdom for particularly low-pay earners, but now increasingly for kind of people who used to consider themselves middle-class professionals. You know, your criminal barristers are on strike, your doctors are on strike, your academics are on strike. You know, there's all these formerly you know, safe, secure, well-paid, you know, white collar professional jobs that with the way the social economic order is reorientating itself are finding their living conditions constricted and decreasing at a quite rapid rates. And so I think that that kind of idea of the boomerang maybe gives us also, gives us a way to what I argue in the book is kind of reorder our traditional teleology of how capitalism moves across the world you know the idea of development is what i really kind of contrast boomerang against and the presumption of development and this is very much something that the kind of the materialist conception of history um you know really lies upon that there is a particular trajectory of social order and that line in marx's capital where he talks about you know the advanced country literally showing the developing country the image of its own future and i try to draw on the boomerang to maybe reverse that in the 21st century and look at the countries that we thought of as being undeveloped, you know, your your Nigerias, your Brazils, your Indias, your Kenyas. looking at the way in which social order functions in these countries, the relationship between security and the protection of property, the relationship between education and kind of mass democracy, the relationship between what people call authoritarian power, which, you know, in the kind of late 20th century was it was seen as, well, the kind of like systems of authoritarian power is because of the essentially uncivilized, backward, racialized nature of these, of these new countries that can't handle mass democracy. But now as we start to see the same responses to democratic elections in America as we see in Brazil, all of a sudden we're starting to see though maybe it has much more to do with the way in which a kind of state power has to manage exploding inequality, you know, as capitalism starts to look a little bit more familiar in the global north as it did in the global south, that reversal of that trajectory of development by thinking that maybe it's in fact the countries in the global south, the former colonies that are maybe showing places like Britain an image of
0: its own future. I mean look if you if you're in Britain the the idea that history and economic development and capitalist growth all follows a nice linear path and everything just gets better I think it's one we're running quite hard into the limits of I mean it's quite uh, visible what's taking place there but this does start to pose some questions for instance, around traditional social democratic organisation. You know, the idea, at least in the 40s and 50s, that basically you're going to get continual growth in the larger developed economies, and this is going to be enough to make sure everyone has a decent standard of living, bit of redistribution, it's all fine. If you're in a world that doesn't work like that, you have to do something quite different, potentially quite radically different. So it poses the question, what are, or what do you think the political formations might look like that are able to start adapting to a world that works in the way that you describe i mean that's a that's a very broad question um that's I mean, a huge think, question sorry <laughs> yeah
1: no 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 at all no um i think that first thing in terms of like new political formations new political organizations and alliances that can respond to that world i think that you know at the core of it i really just wanted to create that space for that kind of like cross-border return of internationalism within the kind of visions of social democracy and um you know radical economic progressivism, you know, thinking about in terms of the United Kingdom that I felt had been relatively absent. You know, even in the kind of apex of the uh, of the Corbyn era, I still feel that a lot of the internationalism that we might have associated with that wing of the Labour Party in previous generations very much kind of fell apart once the leadership of the Labour party fell into into corbyn's hands and a lot of the kind of policy provisions again seem to really exist within the confines of 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 the nation state i think the particular issues provide the potential for that kind of cross-border allegiance perhaps easier than others i mean one of the ones that's you know dominating the news cycle at the moment you know is is the issue of kind of you know tax exemption status for, you know, some of the most elite people and wealthy people in the country, including, you know, our major politicians. Um, you know, I think that it's really inspiring, really encouraging that this is now becoming a major talking point in a way that it's been invisibilized in so many other election cycles that, you know, there's all these tax loopholes and exemptions that, you know, is, uh, you know, potentially available to to, to a wealthy asset-owning class that isn't available to, working people who, you know, pay their tax by PAYE, you know, without these options for for movement. But, you know, in terms of, again, making the history of empire feel something that's very present and very material, you know, I find it endlessly frustrating that there's never a connection between Britain's colonial history and its relationship with kind of global offshoring of wealth you know the fact that all these british overseas territories in the cayman you know the cayman islands the british virgin islands all these caribbean territories are at least according to the tax justice network the leading offshore corporate tax havens in the world this is a history that is wholly embedded with the legacy and aftermath of the british empire you know the cayman islands and british virgin islands we often talk about them like they're these these remote caribbean outposts that you know they put their money in an offshore account in the cayman island that only james bond can go and get that money back if necessary when in reality like these are british overseas territories that were once ruled as direct british colonies that continue to have ultimate sovereignty reside in westminster and if a British government wanted to intervene in these territories, they could do so tomorrow. You know, as the people of the Chagos Islands how Britain can treat its overseas territories when it does want to intervene in these spaces. And the non-dom tax status, you know, that we often talk about even with Rishi Sunak's wife. You know, this is, again, an aftermath of British imperialist endeavor. You know, it was set up to encourage imperial entrepreneurialism by allowing people to now have to pay taxes on the money that they cultivate in the colonies if they didn't remit it back to the United Kingdom. This is an aftermath, a hangover of empire that continues to drive inequality in Britain in 2022 and 2023. And this is something that drives inequality not just in Britain, but also all across the world. And so issues like that, I think, create the potential for alliances between working people you know, in the former colonies and working people in places like the United Kingdom themselves. But it requires that international perspective, that international vision on the, on the, the very real problems that we see in our country today.
0: Well, thank you, God, Joe. I think that's been a, a very wide-ranging uh, discussion as it happens, but we're just about reaching the, the end of our time. I wanted to end as I normally do with something slightly, um, maybe a bit sort of less heavy, which is just, um, if you've read something recently you could recommend to our various listeners, whether related to what we've been talking about or just, you know, something you, that particularly struck you in some way.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I'm currently reading, you know, just on the basis of the last question, I'm reading Philip Sands' The Last Colony about the history of Britain and the Chagos Islands, to it Diego Garcia, and again a history that's really ignored in, in in our in our public conversation around the British Empire. This idea that after a couple of centuries of politely civilizing the natives in these areas, you know, Britain just benevolently handed back control um, to the the natives and you know gave them their independence and allowed them to to flourish. You know, we look at the kind of violence and devastation of British policy towards the the people of the Chagos Islands, you know, moving them off their islands, you know, with the drop of a hat in order to be able to sell it to <laughs> the United States to open up a military base. And, you know, these communities are still looking for justice up until today. I think that is, you know, crucial for understanding the ways in which empire actually came to an end, often with a lot of violence, often with a lot of rebellion from People often, with a lot of reluctance from the British authorities, um, and also the way in which so many of those issues in the aftermath of empire remain unresolved, um, even you know deep into the 21st century as we are at the moment, and have an influence on not just kind of people's lives on a on a kind of moral and empathetic basis, you know, which a lot of people often engage with the history of empire through that basis of. Sympathy and empathy with the kind of victims all around the world of empire, but also what I try and argue, you know, has a connection to the economic and political structures that influence all of our lives, kind of regardless of how our own personal relationship with empire has actually come into being.
0: Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.